Okay, so today our uh, study is going to take us from 1525 to 1611. And we are gonna focus on two people in particular this morning. We're gonna focus on Miles Coverdale. Not as many people are familiar with him as they might be with John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. And we are also gonna talk about King James, the illustrious King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, who was the sponsor for the King James Bible, which of course we're all familiar with. Although Tyndale was executed in 1536, his work lived on and inspired others in England. You recall last time we talked about William Tyndale and the extensive work that he did to translate the scriptures out of the original Greek and Hebrew into English that, that anybody who could read or who could hear have the scriptures read to them would be able to understand. Now, of course, he inspired a lot of other people, and among two people he inspired was a priest, uh, a friar named Miles Coverdale, and also a priest, uh, again, a clergyman, who went by the name of Thomas Matthew, although his real name was John Rogers. Now, during this time, other people in other countries were working on Bible translation. So if you recall from last time, Erasmus was working in uh, France, the Netherlands, Germany, uh, throughout Europe to, to continue to work on translating the scriptures, getting better translations, and also translating other early Christian works into the common language of the day. And of course, you're familiar with the names of Martin Luther and John Calvin. Uh, Luther had his own Bible that he produced in German, and John Calvin, of course, translated the scriptures and also did a lot of original writing. So Miles Coverdale, was born in 1488 in Yorkshire, uh, close to where Tyndale was born and worked, and he was a contemporary of Tyndale, and he studied theology and philosophy at Cambridge. He was admitted to the priesthood in 1514, and he also joined the monastery of the Austin Friars at Cambridge. Uh, these this, this group of monks was basically following in the Augustinian tradition, and so he was both a priest and a monk. So at that time, the prior of the Austin Friars was Robert Barnes, and he helped circulate Tyndale's New Testament. Barnes also spoke out against the luxurious and expensive lifestyle of Cardinal Wolsey, who was the chief church uh, prelate or minister in the church in England at that time. And today we would call him a Catholic, uh, but you have to remember at that time, People didn't think of themselves as Catholics or Protestants necessarily. There was really only one church, but that church was experiencing a lot of dissension and disruption as different people came along with different ideas about how church should be done, how church sh should be governed, what should be available to the common people versus the clergy. You know, uh, we've talked a lot about the clergy-laity distinction. And for a lot of people at this time, they were questioning that distinction. And so Miles Coverdale was surrounded by Reformation ideas. He was influenced greatly by Robert Barnes, and eventually he gave up the monastic life in order to devote himself to evangelical preaching. So similar to the Lollards, if you remember, we have talked about the Lollards, the poor preachers. Now the, the Lollards, in many cases, were just 
the average person, a lay person, as they would have called them, but many in the clergy and in the monasteries were influenced to go and do the same things that the Lollards did. Now, of course, uh, this is not a popular thing to do at this time in England. The church authorities frowned on people just going out and preaching the gospel. Today, we think nothing of that, and we are excited to hear when somebody says, I, you know, I went to Wright State, and I walked up to people on campus, and I started sharing the gospel. And we're like, that's awesome. <laughs> In those days, that was frowned upon, and you could get in a lot of trouble. Uh, so Coverdale left England about 1528. And I think we're beginning to see a pattern here. When the heat gets turned up for those in England who are experiencing religious persecution, where do they usually go? They usually go to continental Europe. And so Miles Coverdale did the same. And so from 1528 to 1535, he spent most of his time in Europe, mainly in Antwerp, Belgium. And again, if you remember, when we talked about William Tyndale, um, Tyndale was also in Belgium. And there was, in fact, a colony of what you would call expatriate English people, people who had fled England because of religious persecution mainly. And they found some degree of freedom and absence of persecution in Belgium. So in Antwerp, there was the English house. And in the English house, English reformers gathered and they were given sanctuary there. And at this point, some historians believe that when Coverdale arrived in Belgium, he worked with William Tyndale on Tyndale's revisions and partial completions of the English version of the Bible that Tyndale was working on. So again, recalling uh, our study on Tyndale, he was arrested in 1535 in, while he was in Belgium, supposedly the safe place to be, but uh, the English authorities uh, were able to convince the rulers in Belgium to uh, arrest Tyndale. But Miles Coverdale, and this is one of the amazing things about this man, so many around him were persecuted to the point of martyrdom and death. But Coverdale did not die a martyr's death. Uh, he continued working alone at this time, and he uh, published his Bible, quote unquote, his, the Coverdale Bible, uh, his version of the Bible in English in that same year. So the Coverdale Bible draws upon Latin, English, and German sources, plus the translations of Tyndale himself. Now, uh, in 1534, about the same time, back in England, the Canterbury Convocation had petitioned Henry VIII that the whole Bible might be translated into English. So even among the establishment, the, the church hierarchy, there was kind of a push for, you know, let's go ahead and have an English version of the Bible. Let's not just keep the Bible in the Latin so that the common people cannot read and understand it for themselves. Um, and of course, again, because of the way society was structured at that time, you know, you couldn't just have any old translation. It had to be an authorized version. And so the Canterbury Convocation, uh, when they petitioned Henry, they appealed to his you know, his belief in his authority. Remember, Henry was a believer in the divine right of kings. God has put me here to be king over this country, and I should rule everything. He was the su supreme head of the English church. Uh, again, recall Henry had broken away from the authority of the pope in Rome. And uh, so, of course, it made sense for the king to uh, basically put his stamp of approval on this effort to come out with an English Bible. 
Coverdale also appealed to the king, and when he came out with his Bible, he dedicated his translation to the king. So in doing this work, Coverdale used Tyndale's translation of the New Testament. Uh, he used the Old Testament books which were translated by Tyndale, and all Tyndale had managed to do at that point, although this was of course a, quite an undertaking in and of itself, Tyndale had uh, translated the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible from the original Hebrew into English, and he had also translated the book of Jonah. So Tyndale being this very educated scholar who had great facility with languages, he spoke upwards of eight languages with great ease, um, he had worked from the original Hebrew in his Old Testament translations. Coverdale did not do that, he basically took Tyndale's work and added to it, or revised it. Coverdale also had access to the Old Testament books that Luther had translated into German, and Coverdale took Luther's German texts and translated those into English. And again, it should be noted that Coverdale did not have the skill in language translation that Tyndale had. Again, he was not working from the original Hebrew and Greek. But nonetheless, his contribution was extremely valuable. And again, just by remaining alive, working with others who were working on the same task and continuing to spread the gospel, and the idea that everyone should be able to read the Bible in their native language, uh, he did much to advance uh, the spread of the scriptures um, in that part of the world at that time. In, 15, in the 1535 edition of the Coverdale Bible, Coverdale's translation of the Psalms formed the basis for his Psalter. At that time, just as today, people write religious devotionals and other types of religious literature, and it was popular for people to have Psalters. And a Psalter was basically a separate book of the Psalms, and it often included other devotional material. So Coverdale Psalter eventually, skipping ahead a little further in time, but eventually it was made a part of the Anglican or Church of England 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Coverdale Psalter, with some corrections, was made part of the 1926 Irish Book of Common Prayer, the 1928 U.S. Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, and the 1962 Canadian Book of Common Prayer. So Tyndale's work with the Psalms uh, affected future generations for many hundreds of years. So Coverdale also, in 1538, produced a parallel translation of the New Testament. And in a parallel translation, he put the Latin Vulgate and a literal English translation of the Vulgate side by side. Now, other people were producing similar types of Bibles, and the, these became very popular. And if you do any Bible study today, you know that this type of uh, information is readily available on the internet. You can pull up multiple translations uh, for different passages of scripture and compare them easily. But in Coverdale's time, this was only accessible mainly, again, to the clergy and monks and nuns working in the monastery system. But to make this type of Bible available in English, was extremely important. Again, this helped the average person be able to see that the Latin Vulgate, which was the authorized Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, that person who did not maybe speak Latin very well could understand it better in English by using Coverdale's parallel translation. 
Now, one of the reasons Coverdale did this was to show that both his and Tyndale's New Testament did not misrepresent the Latin Vulgate and did not contain heretical ideas. Because something that was super important at this time in history was that dreaded word heresy. It was extremely important for people doing this type of work to assure the church and religious and political authorities, we're not doing anything heretical, we're not introducing new ideas, we are simply taking the text and putting them in the language of the common people. At the same time in 1537, about the same time that these other translations are coming out, the Matthew Bible was printed also in Antwerp, Belgium. And two English publishers working in Belgium, Richard Grafton and Edward Whitchurch, they also sent these, again, they were smuggling back the Bibles that were printed on continental Europe back into England because in many cases you could not print, you could not operate a printing press in England and print these Bibles without uh, getting in trouble with the authorities. So they were printing them in Belgium and smuggling them back into England. So the Matthew Bible contained Tyndale's Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it contained a version of Joshua 2 and Chronicles that was translated from the Hebrew, and scholars think this was probably another version by Tyndale. Uh, it hadn't been published before. And then they used the remainder of the Old Testament from Coverdale's Bible, and then Tyndale's New Testament that he had put out in 1535. Now, despite the, uh, the discomfort that the religious authorities of the day must have been feeling, this Bible was dedicated to Henry VIII. So even though it had been printed in another country, here was the Bible, an English version of the Bible that hadn't been authorized by Henry, but nonetheless was dedicated to him. So I think you can see a pattern is beginning to unfold. If we can just you know, please the king, then we can get away with doing this. Uh, Thomas Matthew was actually not the name of the person who was essentially the editor of the Matthew Bible. This was his alias. And again, he probably used this name so that he could, um, so that the authorities could not come after him as easily. And um, his real name was John Rogers. He was an Englishman born in 1505 in Birmingham, educated at Cambridge, like so many of the other scholars. He was a clergyman in the English church. And again, like so many others, he left England to go to Antwerp, Belgium. And he was chaplain there to the English merchants of the company of the merchant adventurers. So that sounds like an exciting job. <laughs> In Antwerp, John Rogers met William Tyndale and abandoned the Roman Catholic faith and embraced the Protestant Reformation ideas that were circulating. And to show that he truly was a reformer, he left the priesthood and he married a woman from Belgium and had 11 children. He also met Miles Coverdale in Belgium and incorporated much of Coverdale's work in the Matthew Bible. Rogers also studied at the University of Wittenberg and graduated from that university in 1540. So he surely, during his time in Germany, you know, the, the name Wittenberg should strike a chord for many of you. Uh, he was probably in contact with Luther, uh, but if, even if he wasn't directly in contact with Luther, he would have been exposed to a lot of Lutheran ideas. So Rogers became the pastor of a Lutheran church in Wittenberg, and he finally was able to return to England in 1548 because Henry VIII had died the year before. Not a bad thing for a lot of people. <laughs> 
So conditions for church reformers were not too difficult in England from 1547 to 1553. This was during the reign of Edward VI. Edward VI was the son of Henry and uh, he became king when he was a child. Uh, so England was ruled, you know, of course he couldn't rule as a child. So he had what were called regents, who uh, adults, noblemen, aristocrats who ruled in his place. Um, Edward lived to be a young adult, but then he contracted a lung disease and died in 1553. So his reign was not very long, but during that time, and Edward was very decidedly uh, a reformer. He was on the side of the Protestant Reformation, and he encouraged uh, many reformers in their work, so things were pretty good in Edward's reign. But when he died, Mary, Queen of Scots, ascended to the English throne after the death of Edward. Now, Mary was a dedicated Catholic, and she instituted widespread persecution of Protestants. And we'll return and talk about uh, some of the persecutions that people endured uh, during her reign later. But let's uh, look at some of the features of the Matthew Bible. It included chapter summaries, woodcut pictures, a concordance, a dictionary, and commentary that was anti-papal reformation in sentiment. And really, probably for a lot of us, if we were to open a Matthew Bible from this time period, it would remind us a lot of the study Bibles that we have today in that it included a lot of supplementary material, not just the text of the Bible. Again, John Rogers had dedicated the Matthew Bible to King Henry VIII, and so the Archbishop of Canterbury at that time, Thomas Cranmer, who was a reformer himself, persuaded Henry to license this Bible, a sign of royal approval. Okay, now we come to the great Bible. So I think you can, again, begin to see a pattern here. People are, scholars, Reformation scholars in England are very much wanting to put forth the Bible that would once and for all be the authorized official version for the church in England. And we get there eventually, but there's a few more Bibles along the way. One of those Bibles was the Great Bible. So by 1537, both the Matthews Bible and Coverdale's Bible were in circulation with apparent approval from the political and religious authorities. Now, the interesting thing about these Bibles is they were based largely on the work of Tyndale, but Tyndale had been killed, and his version of the Bible was essentially outlawed by the authorities. I don't know. It's, you know, it's hard to understand, but somehow some of these versions of the Bible in English were kind of getting through in terms of being officially recognized. Thomas Cromwell who was Henry's chief minister, chief uh, political um, authority in England, he had asked Coverdale to prepare an updated version of his Bible that would replace both the Matthews Bible and the original Coverdale Bible. And again, this was so that there would only be one official and authorized Bible in the English language. So Coverdale did the work and came out with the Great Bible. <clears throat> and although, you know, you might think, well, th isn't this just kind of a rehash of stuff that's gone before? In some respects, the Great Bible had some features to it that were unique. So the printing uh, for this began in Paris in 1539. Um, at this time, the best printing presses and the most advanced printing technology was available in continental Europe, not in England. 
Um, so the people who were trying to produce this Bible decided, we will go to Paris, France, where there's excellent printing technology available, and we'll get this Bible printed in Paris. But the Roman Catholic Inquisition was going full steam at that time in France. And so the presses, the metal type, everything had to be packed up and moved to England because the, the Roman church authorities would have simply confiscated all of it and burned people at the stake. Now, the Great Bible, as its name suggests, was great. It was large. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very large Bible. The pages were about 16 and a half inches by 11 inches. Um, so this was, this, was, uh, this was the kind of Bible that wealthy people could afford to buy for themselves. Um, but as you will see, it was made widely available in churches. So the Latin Vulgate and Erasmus's Latin New Testament were used for the English New Testament uh, the basis for it. And Coverdale also used a Latin translation of the Old Testament as the basis for the English Old Testament in the Great Bible. <clears throat> so finally, the Great Bible became the one single authorized Bible in use in England at that time. Again, other versions were circulating, um, but you could get in trouble if you owned a copy of Tyndale's work. So King Henry VIII, once the Great Bible was produced, asked the bishops of the Church of England to study it to see if it contained any heresy. So they studied it and they said, there's no heresy. And so the Archbishop of York ordered all church curates to provide a copy of the, church, the Great Bible in every church, and people would flock to the churches, and they would gather, they would stand around. These Bibles were put in a prominent place. I imagine they were chained down, and people would go at various times and just read the Bible, because this was the first time, again, that the Bible was made available to the common man. So uh, those who could not read would listen to someone reading it. And they could stand there, they could look at the book, they could hear someone reading it. And for them, this was the first time that they heard the words of scripture in the language that they spoke every day. We can, today, we can't understand how completely revolutionary and, and amazing this was. So the Bible, which had been inaccessible for centuries due to being written in languages that so many people no longer spoke and did not know, and it, was, it had become simply a book that was squirreled away in monasteries, and the monks had done their work of pouring over it, of making the copies, first by hand, and then later through uh, actually printing it on printing presses. But still, so many of the people could not read. They were illiterate. So they could not read it for themselves, perhaps, but they could hear another English person reading the scriptures in their own language to them. Now, I don't know how easy it is for you to see this. You can, uh, you can find this image on the internet, which is where I got it from. Go to Google Images, uh, Google the Great Bible, and you'll come up with lots of pictures and reproductions of the title page woodcut of this Bible. And this picture depicts King Henry VIII seated above the text uh, in the center there. And then uh, also pictured are Archbishop Cranmer, Thomas Cromwell, again, the major religious and political authorities of the day, and then the priests and the people, and essentially they are depicted giving the Bible out. So it's, coming, it's, it's viewed as coming from Henry VIII, the king, and it's being distributed to everyone in England. <clears throat> So this woodcut portrays the hopes of the king that the Great Bible would foster religious and political loyalty. 
So to recap the later life of Miles Coverdale, again, he was one of the few who escaped martyrdom. Um, but by the late 1530s, again, England was in religious turmoil. The conservative or Catholic affiliated clerics, church authorities, and leaders were resisting efforts at reform. And on June 28, 1539, the Act of Six Articles became law and ended whatever tolerance there had been for religious reform. Cromwell, Thomas Cromwell, again, a leading figure in England at that time, was essentially on the side of the Reformation, and he was executed in July, on July 28th of 1540. At the same time, Coverdale's Augustinian friar mentor, Robert Barnes, was executed, and many, many others. Now, Cromwell had protected Coverdale since at least 1527, and it was time to go. So Cromwell's dead. Um, lots of other people are being uh, martyred. Coverdale headed back to uh, continental Europe. But before he left England, he married Elizabeth Matcheson. And again, this is a man who had been a monk, but now he is a part of the Reformation. They've abandoned the idea of a celibate clergy in many cases and concluded that it is okay for a clergyman, a pastor, to be married. And so he married this woman. She was a Scotswoman from a noble family, and she too had been fleeing religious persecution in Scotland. She'd come to England and married Coverdale. The family first went to Strasbourg in eastern France, where they remained for about three years. And Strasbourg is essentially right on the border between France and Germany. Coverdale translated books from Latin and German and wrote an important defense of the work of Robert Barnes. And this is regarded as his most significant reforming statement apart from his Bible prefaces. Coverdale then went to Germany and he received the doctor, uh, the degree rather of Doctor of Theology from Tübingen, Germany and visited Denmark where he wrote reforming tracts. So he was, uh, he headed into Lutheran territory, so to speak, and he met other reformers while he was in this area. In Strasbourg, he befriended Conrad Hubert, who was Martin Bucer's secretary. Martin Bucer was a leading figure in the Reformation in Europe. And uh, this Conrad Hubert was a preacher at the Church of St. Thomas in Bergsaburn in Germany. So in 1543, on the recommendation of Hubert, Coverdale became assistant minister in Bergsaburn as well as schoolmaster in the town's grammar school. Now, interestingly, during this period, Coverdale opposed Luther's attack on the reformed view of the Lord's Supper. And this is a controversy that we simply do not have time to get into. Uh, we may cover this in future um, studies. But also at this time, Coverdale began to learn Hebrew and was becoming competent in the language as had Tyndale been. Now again, King Henry died in 1547. Edward was nine years old when he ascended to the English throne. Edward was on the side of the Reformation. So it looks like it's safe to go back to England. And in March of 1548, Coverdale wrote to John Calvin that he was returning to England after eight years in exile. So Coverdale was well received at the court of the new monarch, Edward VI. He became a royal chaplain in Windsor and was appointed almoner. That's a chaplain who's in charge of distributing money to the deserving poor. Uh, he served in this role to the dowager queen, Catherine Parr. She had been one of the wives of Henry VIII and she was the mother of Edward VI. Catherine Parr was lucky enough to produce a male heir, so she wasn't, you know, executed, <laughs> fortunately for her. 
Eventually, Coverdale became the Bishop of Exeter. The previous bishop was dismissed. Um, he was essentially not fulfilling his duties. And Coverdale took over that role and became a bishop in Exeter in 1551. However, Edward's reign was not long, as we mentioned. So in 1553, Coverdale and his family have to flee to Germany again because Queen Mary uh, is persecuting the Protestants and uh, executing them. Fast forward a little bit. In 1559, he was able to come back to London with his family uh, from 1564 to 1566, he was rector of St. Magnus the Martyr in London, near London Bridge. And at this time, in his later life, Coverdale was actually beginning to be, um, I guess you could say, influenced by Puritan ideas. And he became popular in early Puritan circles because of his quiet but firm stance against elaborate ceremonies and clerical dress. So another way to put it is he was moving away from a high church view of liturgy to more of a low church view of liturgy, which was something that the Puritans advocated. But due to his opposition to official church practices, uh, he eventually lost his position in the church. He died in poverty on May 26, 1569. However, his funeral was attended by multitudes of mourners. During his relatively long life, and he did live a long life uh, from the point of view of many of the reformers, uh, he had been very popular and well-known. And here's a quote from Coverdale. It's kind of a long run-on sentence, uh, but I think it's a good one. It shall greatly help ye to understand the scriptures if thou mark not only what is spoken or written, but of whom and to whom, with what words, at what time, where, to what intent, with what circumstances, considering what goeth before and what followeth after. And the picture there is uh, the, this is uh, one of the stained glass windows in the cathedral in Exeter, and it portrays Miles Coverdale, again, early reformer, translator of the scriptures, Bishop of Exeter, and truly someone that all of us should be familiar with. And now we come to King James. We all know about King James, right? His name is on a Bible. And I'm sure nearly everyone in this room is familiar with the King James Bible. James himself was a Scotsman. He was King of Scotland as James VI, but he ascended to the English throne as James I after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. And you'll note that in these studies, we haven't even talked about Elizabeth. That's, you know, hours and hours of discussion, <laughs> which we don't have. So I haven't really touched on what happened during Elizabeth's reign. Uh, but you can read that about that for yourselves. So within himself, as James VI of Scotland and James I of England and Ireland, he essentially, in his person, united these three countries into one kingdom, although um, the Scots and the Irish didn't feel that way. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> But nonetheless, um, this is, you know, this was the official position. So under James, the golden age of Elizabethan literature and drama continued with writers such as William Shakespeare, John Donne, Ben Jonson, and Sir Francis Bacon contributing to a flourishing literary culture. Historians have praised the scholarship, learning, and literary abilities of the king. He wrote poetry, works on witchcraft and tobacco, 
<laughs> odd subjects, but he was interested in those. He wrote meditations and commentaries on the scriptures. He wrote a manual on kingship. He wrote works of political theory. And of course, he wrote speeches to parliament. But for our focus here, of course, the most important sponsorship that King James provided was as the patron of the translators of the authorized version of the Bible. This was surely the greatest concentration of literary and scholarly talent ever to enjoy, enjoy royal sponsorship in England up to that time. When James came from Scotland to England after the death of Queen Elizabeth I, he was approached by Puritans who had grievances with the Church of England. They wanted to reform the Church of England. And one of the things the Puritans asked for was a new translation of the Bible. Now, James was ambitious to build on the personal union of the crowns of Scotland and English England to establish a single country under one monarch, one parliament, and one law, a plan that had met opposition in both realms. James said, hath he not made us all in one island, speaking to the English parliament, compassed with one sea and of itself by nature indivisible? In April 1604, however, the Commons refused his request to be titled King of Great Britain on legal grounds, but later he went ahead and used the title anyway. <laughs> this is a, you know, and, and it makes sense that, you know, he's the king, so of course he wants to make his reign and the extent of his reign in a geopolitical sense as large as possible. So along with his ambitions for his earthly kingdom, James was a proponent of the divine right of kings, not surprisingly, and also took his responsibility as the head of the church very seriously. Because if you remember, going back to Henry VIII's break with Rome, he set himself as the king, the head of the church in England, so that all monarchs in Britain are the head of the church in England. And this is true to this day. Queen Elizabeth I is the head of the church in England at this time in history. Uh, so it seemed entirely fitting for James that he should sponsor and oversee the work of producing a new authorized version of the Bible in English. The king appointed 54 scholars from Oxford and Cambridge universities and from Westminster Abbey. However, the names of only 47 scholars appear in the records. Now, sadly, there was no money in the royal treasury to fund this work. As one scholar said, King James provided no money for the task, only enthusiasm. <laughs> so Oxford and Cambridge universities picked up the tab for the scholars' room and board. The work was begun in 1607, although some of the scholars had been doing some of this work on their own, uh, working on some parts of scripture prior to the official commencement of work on the King James Version of the Bible. So the scholars were divided into groups to work on different sections and then reviewed the works of other groups. Now, it was told to these scholars that they had to follow the Bishop's Bible, which we really haven't touched on very much. Uh, the Bishop's Bible came out in 1568, and the king wanted them to follow this very closely. The Bishop's Bible, again, was a translation that drew heavily on the work of many reformers, but it had been given the official stamp of approval by bishops in the Church of England. Uh, so the scholars were to use that, but they could also use Tyndale's Bible, and this is pretty radical development. They could also use the Matthew Bible, Coverdale's Bible. They could use the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible, uh, which we haven't really talked about much. This was uh, the translation developed in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, but these Bibles could be consulted as well if they agreed better with the original text in the original languages than the Bishop's Bible. 
For words with different meanings, the scholars had to use the one most commonly used by the ancient fathers. However, some key words retained their old meanings. Some important words that remained ecclesiastical, not literally translated. For example, church instead of congregation, a translation from the Greek word ekklesia, pastor instead of shepherd, uh, from the Greek poimen, bishop instead of overseer, a translation of the word, the Greek word episkopon. So church pastor and bishop were words that were familiar to the English people at that time. These were words commonly used in the Church of England. If these scholars had translated congregation, shepherd, and overseer, they would have been in a lot of trouble. Because again, this version of the Bible had to support the religious and political status quo of the day. This method of translation reinforced the authority of the church in England, of England rather, and the king as head of the church. Now, the translators and scholars also had access to Luther's German translations, the Reims and Douay version of the Bible, which today we think of as more Roman Catholic, uh, Olivetan's French translation, Latin translations by Erasmus and other scholars, the Latin Vulgate, Italian and Spanish translations, and Daniel Planton's polyglot Bible, which contained the text in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and Syriac. And Daniel Planton, not a name known to many, I'm sure. Uh, he's not very well known, but he was uh, a very erudite, uh, well-read, well-studied scholar working in, in what is today known as Holland or the Netherlands. And uh, he had produced this amazing Bible um, using um, the original texts in many cases. The translators appear to have otherwise made no firsthand study of ancient manuscript sources, even those that, like the Codex Bezia, which was a fifth century manuscript of the four gospels in Greek and Latin, that would have been readily available to them. So there were ancient manuscripts in Greek, Latin, and other languages that they could have gone back to, but they did not. But regardless of its shortcomings, the King James Bible remains one of the greatest landmarks in the English tongue. It has decidedly affected our language and thought categories, and although produced in English, England for English churches, it played a unique role in the historical development of America and other nations. Even today, many consider the King James Bible the ultimate translation in English and will allow none other for use in church or personal devotions. So what did King James think of the translation that was given his title and name? Apparently, he was pleased with the work done by the scholars and especially pleased that it helped solidify his rule in a land with inc increasing religious tensions between Catholics, Protestants, the hierarchy of the Church of England, and Puritans who wanted reform. By giving people, more people, direct access to the Bible, the King James Version also had a democratizing influence within Protestantism itself, especially in the English colonies being settled in the New World. The New Bible didn't help the Puritans and other reformers to make the reforms that they wanted in the Church of England, but in the colonies, the Anglicans no longer had supremacy because the Puritans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and others came, all of whom made use of the King James Bible. Okay, so that concludes what I have to share with you today. Um, any questions or comments? Sydney. Oh, no, I was 
your slide of where of a key word you train with, it's useful to understand that if you get those, well, we, I guess if you're a literary opponent of the King James Bible, you almost see the glitches in the translation, but you you help you help write out why they did that. So right. I like that. So if you understand those glitches, at least you get the that awesome translation. Yeah, you know, some people might say, well, that's really a mistake. Well, it's a mistake with a purpose <laughs> behind it. One of the things I think it's important to understand, um, <clears throat> thinking about God's sovereignty and his grace upon human beings at different times in history, um, God makes available his word, uh, and sometimes he uses what appear to be not very religious or not very quote unquote good people to do it. And sometimes political and religious and economic factors shape the development of how we are able to receive the grace of God through the word and through the other means of grace. But nonetheless, God does his work uh, despite what human beings do to maybe stand in the way and oppose it, or maybe they don't stand in the way, maybe sometimes they just don't help very well. But nonetheless, God does his work, even using people like kings <laughs> who have mixed motivations sometimes uh, and ulterior motives. So the King James Bible is still uh, one of the most important pieces of English literature to this day. And I really don't think it will ever disappear. Um, I think it will continue to be read and uh, pe people will continue to go for it, go to it, to, to understand God's word. And it's, it's been praised for its uh, tremendous literary um, excellencies. Uh, it's, it's so many parts of it are just beautiful poetry. Uh, f things are phrased so well. Uh, again, we have much to thank the early uh, reformers, like going back to Wycliffe. Certainly the work of Wim William Tyndale was absolutely essential. And the work of other people like Miles Coverdale have made this possible. So thank you.